Martha Reeves there, something. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, queer policy guru Alastair Laurie joins us and we chat with Guy James Whitworth from the Sydney Sentinel. Well, the federal government has announced it's about to release the latest version of its religious discrimination bill and we do have Alastair Laurie on the line. Alastair, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me back. It's always great to chat with you, Alastair. Alastair, what do we know about the latest version of the government's bill? We don't know a lot at this stage. So we've heard from Liberal backbencher Kevin Andrews during the week that the government has been working behind the scenes on finalising the bill uh, and that it's now ready to go at any moment. If the first two versions of the bill are anything to go by, uh, the legislation will be a serious threat to the rights of LGBTI Australians to live our lives with dignity and free from discrimination. I think one thing that came up in Mr Andrews' comments is that he described it as a compromise, but that's misleading. Um, So Andrews is not talking about a compromise between people seeking protection under the law and those groups who would be harmed, like LGBTI Australians. He can't be, because as far as I'm aware, the attorney hasn't been consulting in the last 12 months with groups representing LGBTI people. Instead, he's more likely to be talking about compromise between the second version of the bill and those with religious fundamentalists who wanted it to go even further. Yes, I was incredibly cynical when I heard Kevin Andrews say that. I mean, you must see it as a huge red flag. Absolutely. So let's not forget the religious discrimination bill arguably got worse between the first exposure draft, which was released uh, in late 2019, and the second exposure draft, uh, which closed consultation uh, in early 2020, um, including the fact that the second exposure draft would have allowed the hospitals and aged care services to discriminate in employment on the basis of religion. So as an aside, imagine after the past 12 months that we would be allowing those essential services to hire the second, fifth, or even the tenth best person for a job just because they had the correct religious views. Anyway, returning to the bill, the truth was revealed by Andrews himself because in the same uh, leaked presentation, he said that, quote, if enacted, it would be a huge step in terms of protecting religious uh, freedom of religion in Australia, end quote. Mr Andrews is not a friend of LGBTI people, and that quote is an ominous sign for LGBTI Australians. Absolutely. I mean, just the fact that he's talking about the bill, he's the first you know, government MP to come out and talk about this draft exposure bill, that's not a good sign considering his track record on LGBTIQ issues. It's not like they've wheeled out a moderate to talk about it. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the bill never really went away. They finished consultation at the end of January in 2020, and they were preparing at the introduction in March last year, right when the pandemic hit. And even through the worst of coronavirus in 2020, the government never abandoned its commitment to introduce this bill when it says the time is right. So um, we've always feared that it would be back on the agenda at some point. And I think Mr Andrews' comments mean that at some point this year, we should expect it to come back. Scott Morrison's been highlighting recently that when he became Prime Minister, he promised to unite Australians. Do you think this bill you know, breaks that promise? I mean, it seems very divisive, especially during a pandemic. Uh, absolutely. I think this is, this is not the kind of legislation that the country needs. Um, and, and I think I've also highlighted another uh, promise that Mr Morrison made, I think, in the second month he was in the job, and that was to protect LGBT students from discrimination. Um, by religious schools before the end of 2018. Uh, he broke 
for a bill to come in to give religious schools the ability, even greater ability, to discriminate against uh, teachers, against students and against people in the community. I mean, the government's had plenty of excuses, haven't they, to get rid of this legislation, I mean, the pandemic being one of them. Do you think this really shows that it's a, it's a core policy belief that they have, that um, this religious discrimination um, view that they have is a core kind of tenet of this government's ideology? And in fact, they're pretty misleading in 2019, not taking it to the federal election. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who desperately want to see this law, um, this bill become law. Uh, and, and some of them might even be motivated for the right reasons. I think you and I have discussed this before, that people of faith absolutely should be protected against discrimination, uh, including in Commonwealth New South Wales and South Australian law, where it's not currently protected. But this bill is not about that. This bill is about extending rights to discriminate against other groups and even including uh, people from minority faiths. So um, they've taken the kernel of a good idea and turned it into something that could undermine the rights to equality and dignity of, of women, of LGBTI people, of single parents, divorced people and people in de facto relationships, people with disability, and as I said, even people from minority faiths. This is, this is not a standard religious discrimination bill. This is a right to discriminate bill. Is there much political opposition within the government towards this bill? It's unclear. Um, so uh, I guess the fact that it remains on their agenda is, is a bad sign. But what I would say is that this is a challenge for moderate liberals, including gay and lesbian liberal MPs. So the onus is on them. Are they prepared to vote for legislation which undermines the rights of other LGBTI Australians to live our lives free from discrimination? But it's not just about moderate uh, and gay and lesbian liberal MPs. The second group that, that this puts the test towards is Labor. So disappointingly, they've still not publicly stated their position on the bill. Um, whenever it comes back, uh, or at the ALP National Conference, which is coming up at the end of March, um, they must be committed to opposing any laws which deny fundamental rights to other groups. Uh, and, and even if Labor opposes, we still need other votes against it from uh, to block the bill's passage uh, from other key crossbench senators, including Sterling Griff and Rex Patrick from South Australia. Absolutely. And I'm keen to kind of, you know, explore Labor a little bit more in, in just a few moments. But I'm keen to focus on the queer MPs within the government. Are you disappointed that MPs such as Trent Zimmerman and Tim Wilson weren't straight out of the blocks uh, denouncing the, you know, the kind of underlying core tenets of this legislation when Kevin Andrews said it was coming back? charitable interpretation would be to think that they are doing that behind closed doors. And that's what I hope that they would be doing. I mean, I agree with you. I think it would be better if they were also publicly criticising legislation as being unnecessary and, and divisive. Um, but hopefully they are making those presentations behind closed doors uh, in the strongest possible way. Are you concerned, getting back to Labor, that if Anthony Albanese you know, allows a conscience vote on this issue that it will get through the Senate, that it'll be done and dusted and it'll become law? If it's a government bill and, the, and government MPs are locked in behind it, uh, yes, if, if uh, Mr Albanese allows a conscience vote, then this will become law and our rights will be eroded.
Any chance you think that the government will allow a conscience vote among its MPs? I don't think so. I think because this is something that the government has been pushing uh, for quite a long period of time, that the vast majority would be expected to lock in behind it and it would only be a, a very small number of backbench MPs who might consider crossing the floor, but that would not, even if that was uh, to happen, that wouldn't be enough to overcome a, an ALP conscience vote. To what extent do you think Anthony Albanese's leadership woes that have been in the media lately have kind of, you know, buoyed uh, the government to bring this legislation on, uh, knowing that it could be potentially very divisive within the Labor Party? Uh, I think that that question's a bit beyond my pay grade in terms of political analysis. But what I uh, do know is that if Mr Albanese is looking to be a clear leader, if he's looking to show the community that he stands up for something and if he's looking to to demonstrate to the LGBTI community that uh, he supports our rights and our interests, then this is a great opportunity to to demonstrate that, to show that uh, he is willing to go into that for vulnerable communities and stop a bill that would discriminate against them. So he has that chance. He shouldn't waste it. I know we haven't seen the last version, but give us kind of, you know, a recap of just the everyday impacts on queer folks uh, based on the previous versions of, of this legislation that we've seen. Like, how's it going to impact on us, you know, in our everyday lives? Sure. So based on the previous version of the bill, so the second exposure draft that was open for consultation until January 2020, I would describe four main problems with the religious discrimination bill. The first was that it makes it easier to make comments that offend, humiliate, intimidate, insult or ridicule minority groups. Um, For example, protecting statements of belief um, and overriding state and territory anti-discrimination and anti-vilification laws, especially Tasmania's Best Practice Anti-Discrimination Act, which is singled out uh, in that bill. Uh, Second, making it easier for health practitioners to refuse to serve minorities or provide services that uh, fill their needs. So, for example, allowing doctors to refuse to prescribe and pharmacists to refuse to fill scripts for puberty blockers for trans and gender diverse kids. Um, third, making it easier for religious bodies to discriminate against others. So, as we've already discussed in this interview, uh, including making it even easier for religious schools using taxpayers' money to discriminate against teachers and students and parents. Uh, and fourth, making it more difficult for big business to promote diversity and inclusion um, because it limits the ability of larger corporations to apply uh, legitimate restrictions on employees, homophobia, biphobia and transphobia, where the employee claims that it's motivated by their religion. Tell us about the impacts on other folks of this legislation, such as you know women and Indigenous people and people with disabilities. Sure. So because it... Uh, protects or, or it, sorry the language of the bill is that it protects religious beliefs but actually uh, the way the bill has been designed it weaponizes religious beliefs um, it's not just beliefs that it impacts LGBTI Australians that would be um, weaponized so beliefs against or about uh, women and their um, uh, parenting or relationship status uh, or sexual expression um, would be protected as well, um, in particular uh, against single mothers. 
similarly divorced people, people in de facto relationships, the breadth of the bill is only as um, limited as the breadth of a religious belief. And so that's why the range of groups just, that could be potentially impacted just keeps on expanding, even to people with disability, where religious belief, um, in some cases, describe disability as sinful. And, and that's horrific to you and I, um, but that would be potentially made lawful by this bill. So it, it really is a wide-ranging bill where LGBTI people are perhaps the most clear target, but lots and lots and lots of people have, have legitimate reasons to fear this legislation. Yes, it sounds like this bill is kind of winding back decades of, you know, human rights legislation and anti-discrimination legislation in Australia. It seems to be taking us back to, you know, the pre-Fraser era almost. For some of the proponents of the bill, they've long objected to anti-discrimination legislation um, because it does what it says it does. It puts people on an equal footing, uh, allows everyone to participate in society um, equally or or close to equally. Um, This is a great way if you want to undermine that legislation um, by giving particular protections or special privileges to some people to discriminate against others. It's designed in that way and, and the clause which overrides state and territory anti-discrimination and anti-vilification laws to protect statements of belief does exactly that. It privileges uh, religious belief and directly undermines the rights of everybody else. How well equipped do you think the community is to kind of, you know, organise and respond this time around considering we're all exhausted from the pandemic? Has the government caught us at a weak moment? On another matter, you've been doing lots of work uh, focused on Western Australia and uh, law reforms there. Can you give us a little bit of a recap of what you've been doing? Sure. So uh, I've written to all the major parties as well as the parties represented in the Legislative Council there to ask them about their policies on uh, both reform of their Equal Opportunity Act, which is as bad as the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Act, um, and also about birth certificate reform because uh, Western Australia probably has the third worst uh, birth certificate system for um, transgender diverse people. Like New South Wales and Queensland, the legislation technically says you have to access surgery before um, you 
another form of um, physical intervention. So, for example, hormone uh, treatment, it's not based on self-identification. Um, so in both those cases, the Western Australian Parliament, the next one that's elected next month, really has an onus to move those laws forward. Uh, and I've been asking the parties for their responses on those issues. At this stage, I've received a, a positive response from the Greens uh, and the Nationals have responded to say that on both those issues, they will have conscience votes uh, in the next term of Parliament, but I'm yet to receive responses from Labor or the Liberals. Do you think the McGowan government's been lazy on LGBTIQ issues? I probably wouldn't use the word lazy, but I do think that they, if they are re-elected, they need to um, pick up the pace. So these, these laws have been left to language for far too long. And um, there's really no excuse for not bringing their birth certificate laws into the 21st century and there's no excuse for not reforming their anti-discrimination laws because they are so outdated, so ineffective in terms of who they um, cover uh, and have religious exceptions which really can't be justified in the 2020s. Alistair Laurie, it's always great to get your insights on 3CR. Thank you so much for joining me today.
Miley Cyrus there, Plastic Heart, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Guy James Whitworth is a writer at the Sydney Sentinel and he joins us on the line. Guy, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you, James. Thank you for having me. So how has COVID impacted on you as an artist? Has it made you more prolific? Oh, you know what, James? I'm going to... I'm going to say that's such a really loaded question for artists because I did a talk. I did a talk a couple of weeks ago at Wollongong Art Gallery, and I was asked the same question. And it's such a loaded question because I have to say, COVID has actually been really quite kind, or the time of COVID has been really quite kind to a lot of artists. A lot of creatives have really sort of embraced um, what's happened in the world, what's happened in Australia as a time to really sort of get into their practice and really sort of, you know, uh, hide themselves away in their sort of their studio or sort of, you know, wherever it is that they, you know, write, paint, create and whatever they do. Um, and it's actually been a real silver lining to an otherwise awful cloud of, um, of yeah, being able to sort of get into doing that. And I feel really guilty saying that. It's such a double-edged sword. It's such a... I feel guilty saying that, you know, I feel bad because it's it's obviously sort of making the best of a bad situation, but it is a bad situation. But yeah, as a creative, I have to say, it it, it has not been unkind to me, COVID. And also sort of, you know, from... um, because I obviously, uh, you know, you introduced me as a writer and I am a writer, but I'm a bit of a slasher. I'm a bit of a sort of, you know, um, uh, writer slash artist slash singer, dancer, actress, model. I mean, maybe not the last bit, but, you know. Um, so I kind of do lots of different things, but from from sales, from art-wise, it's actually been a really amazing time for me and a few other artists that I know. We've actually sort of... Uh, my, my sales have, 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 have gone really well because people are in a position where they need... They want new art to hang in the houses that they've sort of been confined to. So it's actually, again, you know, to use that expression again, it's a... It's a silver lining in a cloud, basically. You do write for the Sydney Sentinel. What can you tell us about the Sentinel? Well, you know, um, the Sydney Sentinel is it's, it's a very young publication. It's only been in existence, I'm going to guess, a little bit over half a year. Um, and it's amazing. It's actually really good to be a part of something that's so new and so switched on and so open to sort of to uh, to new ideas, to new sort of creativity. It, it, it has sort of, uh, I mean, you know, to be honest, it's, it's not always a good thing when you say it has something for everybody. But the Sydney Sentinel really does cover a lot of sort of topics and sort of things that I'm really interested in. It has news, it has, uh, you know, sort of um, stuff about vegan lifestyle, about sort of, you know, being plant-based, about being queer, about being creative. It, it, it has a lot of things that I find really interesting. So I'm really happy and really proud to be, uh, I guess, sort of um, a regular columnist, let's call me. But I, I sort of have something published in there. And then there most weeks. And people are, you know, listeners are welcome to sort of um, give Sydney Sentinel a, a Google and then sort of go through the search engine at the bottom of the, the page and type in my name, Guy James Whitworth, and you can see some of the things that I've written. And, that, and it really ranges from everything. It's really sort of, you know, um, Peter, who is the editor, is really good. He basically sort of gave me the brief of sort of, you know, what's in your head and what 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 are you interested in and maybe write something about that. So it's 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 I like to think that my opinions are vague, creative, informed and also accessible to other people who sort of want to 
to, to, to read what is going through my head at that, at that point. I've been loving your articles, actually, and I could I could really thank tell you, that, that Peter's been giving you that creative license because you have been writing about things that you're interested in. You can really tell that with your with your writing. One of the articles mm. that you wrote that I absolutely loved was um, a fascinating article about Sydney having the opportunity to become one of the world's great art cities. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Um, well, I can, but I'd say to, 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 to listeners, do read the article because it's quite a long article. But, um, but I mean, to be honest, again, it sort of comes back to that question that you just asked me about, you know, being creative in the time of COVID. It's, um, it, it, it's really an opportunistic thing. You know, we've been so lucky and so utterly blessed here in Australia to not be um, as attacked by the COVID virus as, as say New York and as London and as most of Europe, and it really has sort of um, it has impacted negatively on us. I'm certainly not saying that it hasn't, but it has left sort of our creative communities, for the most part, um, in a really powerful and really sort of um, lucky place. And it's actually sort of I'm, I, I talk about this in the article. There's lots of different creatives that I know who are. You know, poets, um, drag performers, people who sort of really sort of, you know, play and experience and, and experiment with gender. Um, uh, a lot of different sort of uh, political sort of um, writers I know are sort of really sort of hitting their stride with what's going on in Australian politics and certainly sort of being able to bounce that off world politics because there's so much going on in the world. I feel like the, the Sydney, but Melbourne and really sort of, you know, um, Australia wide, there's this real energy which is unfortunately not able to to really flourish at the minute around the world and i and i do feel that you know with with a little bit of government encouragement and support and, and funding basically there's a there's a good chance that yeah sydney and australia could become the next sort of big art sort of destination in the world um and that sort of that's that's also sort of really it's a really interesting statement, but it's a really interesting statement when you think about where we are in the world and how a lot of technologies are really progressing to, uh, you know, sort of around communication and around the communication of, of art and creativity. You wrote that Sydney's suppression of minorities produces an underbelly of creative resourcefulness and innovative ideas. I found that fascinating. Can you tell us a bit more about what you meant by that suppression, how it manifests? Well, it's, it's, I mean, I think every different artist that you asked that question to or sort of made that statement to and asked them to justify that statement would say something different. Um, I mean, I think sort of, you know, the statement that I made, it made it sort of self-explanatory really, but, but realistically, as somebody who sort of, you know, has gone through their life as a slightly otherized sort of, you know, um, individual in society, I, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm queer. My, my politics and my creativity is, is very much sort of fed from my queerdom. Um, and that, at the minute, is, I'm going to say, semi-accepted in the world, and even mostly accepted in the world, but not always completely um, accepted in the world. And I think sort of when, when you get sort of a lot of, a lot of sort of minorities who come together and have access to other communities which are also oppressed, then you end up with sort of, you know, um, I hate to use the word subculture because the word sub implies less. But um, but you do get these really creative subcultures that sort of come along where you have an art movement, you know, with writers and philosophers and sort of academics and artists all sort of moving along the same lines of trying to sort of 
trying to retaliate and trying to sort of rebel and trying to actually move against something. And normally that something is a political movement which isn't going in the way that, you know, aware or woke society wants it to go. And I do think in Australia... um, you know, it's so it's so difficult to sort of touch on politics at the minute because there's such a lot of politics going on. There really is. We live in an interesting time, to say the least. But there's a lot of stuff, you know, just sort of just to pick up on what's been happening in the past few weeks in Canberra. Um, you know, um, I mean, I look I look at politics in the moment, and you know, the misogyny that I witness is just dreadful. And there are so many women artists, so many female artists who, uh, quite rightly, are angry and passionately angry and creatively angry at that. And then there's also, you know, sort of the the support system which is in place for those artists, um, such as myself and lots of other sort of, you know, repressed minorities, otherized people who collectively agree with that. Um, it's, it's, it's a funny thing because there's been a big... I'm sorry, sorry, James, I'm just going to sort of go on a bit of, go on a, bit of a tangent here. Uh, there's a big sort of thing happening um, for Mardi Gras this year, you know, of... Uh, as always, New South Wales police will be marching in the Mardi Gras parade. And that's a really big thing. You know, when you think about sort of um, a lot of queer hate crimes have not, still not been resolved. There's a lot of, you know, sort of the incarceration rate of Indigenous youth in this country. There's a lot of things that people are angry at the police about. And there's a big debate, you know, whether or not is it, is it a good thing to have the police march in Mardi Gras? Is it not? You know, sort of surely New South Wales police have a lot on their plate at the minute and there's things, other things that they could be doing, let's say. But, it, but it's, 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 again, this is this interesting time and we're so lucky that we're just, you know, sort of in this time of COVID still able to even discuss these things and even sort of, you know, um, able to come together to, to work these things out as communities. Um, but yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. That was a bit of a sort of a, I'll throw this into, but yeah. But a fascinating one as well. Do you think Mardi Gras, the organisation, has kind of lost its way politically a little bit? I mean, last year there was a guy who jumped in front of the um, Liberal Party when they were marching and got arrested. Mm. And, and that just mm. seemed to so many people to be a complete slap in the face to the organisation's roots and the uh, protest against the police and political oppression that happened in 1978. There's, there's so many things just there, James, that I could pick up on what you just said. Uh, but I'm going to sort of, t- in answer to your immediate question, I don't think that Mardi Gras has lost its way. I think Mardi Gras as an organization always has to try and respond to the times that it operates within. And we've had Mardi Gras now for the past 40, 43 years, I think it is. And, and you think about what has changed in that time. And there's no one single sort of uh, organization or or, you know, sort of not-for-profit, whatever you want to call it, that that can respond to time and not have issues within that to how, how to structure themselves. I think, I mean, I, I, I'm marching next week. Um, let's hope it is next week um, uh, in the Mardi Gras parade. And, and I, I, I go in most years. Most years I go in and I politically think about what I'm doing, you know, sort of, uh, what, what what am I trying to say with the entry that I put in? Because every year, sort of Mardi Gras allow me, I'm very lucky they allow me and sort of 40 friends to go in and parade and say something and make a statement. Uh, and I think it's really important that we have Mardi Gras. I think having Mardi Gras is a big plus. It's a big positive. But I think 
to have dialogue and also to be able to have dialogue about what Mardi Gras is, what it consists of, what it's trying to say, what it does actually say, or the message that it sends out. I think these are really interesting conversations and they're such important um, positive conversations to have. And I don't think Mardi Gras is, just to answer your question again, I don't think it's 100% in the right every year with how it structures its um, content for the parade, and that's politically and sort of socially and on, on, on a few different levels. But I don't think it's 100% wrong, and I think it gets a lot more right than it gets wrong. And to me, that's a positive thing. So we just have to sort of celebrate that. I, th- I think Mardi Gras is in a really, really impossible position, and it certainly can't keep everyone happy. It certainly can't please all the people all of the time, because as we know, that's impossible. But I do think that it 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 does listen to what LGBTQI people want, and I think that's really important. And as much as it can for an organisation that has to uh, stay healthy and stay funded and stay relevant, it tries to do that. So I think it's a good thing, but but it depends who you talk to as to what percentage Mardi Gras does get right. That's the truth of it. Because there's been a lot of, you know, criticism of Mardi Gras on its position towards, you know, refugees and, you know, carriers of refugees being deported and things like that. How toxic do the debates get in Sydney around Mardi Gras' political decisions? (laughs) Toxic? James, I have no idea. (laughs) Gay people, we could never get toxic, how dare you? Um, Look, debates are heated. People get, you know, people do believe really passionately about this. I'm lucky I have a good a good few friends who are 78ers and yeah you know I sat around a few dinner tables in my time uh, with a couple of glasses of wine inside of me and you know sort of you know shouted what I believe and and I think it's really healthy that we do that I think we're really lucky in this country that we can do that um I think Mardi Gras will always, always be a controversial thing. When you think about how it started, it started as a riot. So now, if it was, if it was this thing that had morphed into this very comfortable and dull, and everybody was happy with it kind of thing, then to be honest, that would also be wrong. I think it's really healthy that um, when people look at the Mardi Gras parade and they look at the Mardi Gras festival and they look at the Mardi Gras organisation, that they have passionate views on it. Of you know. It should be this. It's it, it could be that. It um, you know, it's done this and it's moving in this direction. And I don't. I, I don't, again, just to sort of say, you know, I don't think it gets it right all the time, but I think more often than not, it does get it right. And also, we have to remember, really, you know, sort of. Um, I, I grew up in the UK. I didn't grow up in Australia, but it's it's a universal constant that there are queer kids out there in the world who still still struggle for representation and still still struggle to see themselves um you know sort of uh in the world around them and they're still trying to find their place and trying to sort of you know just dis- discover who they are and really sort of you know work out their own identity and things like Mardi Gras which goes live broadcast to the nation and you know sort of is is a perfect example of the representation of unapologetic brave bold colorful queerdom um, that cannot be replaced. That is so, so, so important, you know, that that, that queer babies around the world get to see this. Um, so, yeah, it might not be perfect, but, you know, it's it might never be perfect, but it's got to keep trying. And I think as long as we get most of it right, then it's better than not getting any of it right, is the truth. 
you mentioned your original country of the UK and you wrote recently that London had lost its way as an arts capital. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I know you mentioned poor leadership, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, um, do I need to explain that, James? I don't think I do. I mean, Boris, you know, one word, one single, you know, like Madonna and Garbo, he's a bit of a legend, but unfortunately for all the wrong all the wrong reasons, you know, that, that man can stand and say, look down there, you know, look down the barrel of a camera and say we have done the best that we can for the UK um, is just is symptomatic of, I'm just going to use C words here, of corruption and... Yeah, I, I just I just have no faith in the Conservative government. I don't think a lot of people have. I think over there in the UK at the minute, you know, I, I, I have family over there. I speak to them. I communicate with them online constantly. Uh, you, you know, it's 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 awful. And again, to use this opportunistic word, I, I look at the UK and it just makes me so thankful for what we have here in Australia. You know, it, it, the UK is an island. Australia is an island. Um, they certainly have not been perfect in their in their sort of response and um, you know sort of uh, treatment and processing of the whole COVID thing, and neither have we. But we are so much more we're just so much more luckier, you know, than they are. Um, I don't think that we've got really better leadership, is the truth of it. But I think if it was you know sort of a spitting contest between Scomo and Boris. Uh, I think ScoMo, ScoMo has better advice and certainly has better sort of people around him than I'm guessing Boris does. Uh, it, it, I just I just feel so sad when I look at the UK now and I just see what it's become and where it's at. And I think everybody knows that it's going to be... I mean, for, for the UK and for New York, um, for, 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 for the US and for a lot of the places around the world, it's going to be a really difficult slog back to a starting point, is the truth of it, you know? Uh, certainly, certainly creatively for creative and queer communities, but I think also for just everybody. It's not just about Boris, though. You wrote that uh, the UK was having an awakening, or London was having an awakening to the toxicity around its colonial cultural identity, and that was impeding yeah. its capacity as an arts hub. <laughs> Oh, I, I, James, I wish everybody read my words as, as closely as you did. Good Lord. Um, I'm liking these quotes. Thank you. Uh, yeah, look, I think I think we live in a really interesting time. Uh, I know, certainly, as somebody who was born in the UK and lives in Australia, I am really processing and really doing my best to deal with a lot, a lot as much as I can, uh, about colonialism what that means. Um, I did a painting which is on my website if anybody wants to check it out and it's called What Had What If Better Intentions Had Sorry, What If Kinder Intentions Had Led to Better Outcomes? And it's a painting um, of Captain Cook um, but it's actually not Captain Cook. Captain Cook in my painting is a gender non-conforming female-bodied person of colour and I am really sort of through my artwork and through through my art practice and through a lot of sort of my writing, really questioning and dealing with and grieving even uh, a lot of what it, what I think collectively society, um, certainly society in the colonies, and I hate using that word because it's such an ugly word, but um, 
we're, we're, I think we're all coming to this collective sort of um, awakening of what we did and what, uh, you know, sort of in Australia, the first fleet did to Indigenous communities. Um, I, I, I was lucky. I, I got to go to Berlin the year before last, just before um, COVID hit. And um, and I really learned a lot in Berlin and I really sort of dealt with um, a lot when I got back. And what I was sort of really processing is that Berlin is a country who, sorry, Berlin is a capital in a country of Germany. And Germany has really, really processed and really honestly processed what it went through in the Second World War and the, and the points that it went through to get there and how that happened and how they can make sure that's never going to happen again and how they can try and make amends. And to me, that's really essential for the country to move on and to learn and to build new processes and build honest and authentic reactions to, um, to society. And I don't think Australia has done that in any kind of way. You know, um, you know, uh, we use the word, you know, never see. We use the words never seeded a lot. That's a really, really important thing. You know, um, we, we, in Australia, we really have to process a lot, and I think it's going to be a gradual thing that happens. But it really has to happen, and it's going to be a really difficult thing for Australia to go through. But it's, but it's a really essential thing that we realise. You know, there was a catastrophic um, outcome when the first fleet arrived, and we can't keep denying that, and we can't keep denying Indigenous, you know, we can't keep denying First Nations people their rights, as as no countries around the world can. We've all got to collectively start facing some very, very, un, un, un what's the word? Sort of inconvenient truths and... Yeah, and I mean, sort of, you know, again, um, again, listeners are welcome to sort of to, to, to view my work and see how I'm trying to process through that in a, in a creative way. It's a very difficult thing to, certainly as somebody who, who, who was born in the UK, it's a very difficult thing to process sometimes, a very alarming thing. It's a very alarming truth, but I think it's a really important one. Absolutely, and I think that reckoning in Australia can't really happen until we do things like you know have a treaty, but also abolish abolish yeah. Australia Day, which is a day of incredible yeah. trauma. I mean, that's such a non-brainer, and it just every year we again we sort of battle to get through that day, and it's just such a it's a day of mourning to anyone who has half an ounce of sense, and it shouldn't be celebrated. It really does need to be acknowledged but not celebrated in that way uh, again it's it, to me non-brainer we just have to change the date it's really quite it's really quite straightforward finally guy what can we expect in the coming months from you artistically what new stuff is in the pipeline well let me tell you james lots of things um i've got a plane flying over me at the minute so hopefully you can't hear the plane and you can just hear me um i have a book coming out i had a book that came out oh, the year before last called Signs of a Struggle, which was the last time you and I spoke on air. We chatted a little bit about that. Um, but I've got a new book coming out. It comes out in about six weeks' time. Uh, it is called Enough of Your Nonsense, which I just love that expression, Enough of Your Nonsense. And it's actually really good because it gets it, on the cover. It actually says Enough of Your Nonsense, Guy James Whitworth, which makes me smile every time I see it. So I have a new book coming out. But at the minute, and I know that you spoke to my partner on your, your show about this, uh, I'm a co-founder with my partner for No Meet May. 
which is, um, I think, sort of the title sort of is, is quite clear what that's about. Um, and we're basically just sort of um, putting together the No Meat May. Um, oh, what's the word? What's the word that I'm looking for? Agenda. Sort of, uh, <laughs> agenda. We'll go with agenda. But really sort of the No Meat May sort of um, campaign for this year. I prefer campaign rather than agenda. But, um, but yeah, it's busy, busy, lots of fingers, lots of pies, doing lots of different things. I've got, I think I've got two exhibitions coming up, but I, I'm just waiting for dates to settle on those before announcing those. Fantastic. Guy James Whitworth, always wonderful to chat with you on 3CR. Let's Thank do it again you sometime. Too, James. Very definitely. Um, yes, you have a really good afternoon and thanks for taking the time. It's a great pleasure. Cheers. The wonderful Guy James Whitworth there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Duran Duran. This track's called Rio.
Duran Duran there. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. Have a great weekend, everyone. Taking us as Marianne Faithful with Eye Communication. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. your face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. 
Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.